We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. Okay, ready? what you know and it's about a time when you get yourself in a I want to know something she's I think about Amy wanting me to get a hole in it. Things are rooting real now. I have a senior wanting you. Hey. The tour ratio. Okay, though. The tour ratio. Okay, though. That might be the best question I've ever been asked. <laughs> You're a phenomenal person. I mean, you legendary. I am a fan of you, my brother. People, I think, think of that there's only two levels to this. Um, where And they never think of cannabis as that, that glass of wine after work or right. that beer after work. Um, and, you know, that a, a five milligram gummy, um, you know, can, can do that for you. Or a one-to-one um, you know, gummy um, can really just be that that glass of wine that that takes off some of that stress. Um, and having that cannabis knowledge can really be able to work those things into your life in a way um, that that doesn't mean that you have to be you know staring in the corner high. Um, and but but when people don't have that information, they have those bad experiences, and then they're like, oh, I, I can't do that cannabis because I had a bad ex- experience. Well, if this was the end of prohibition, you'd have to have a conversation with someone. Do I drink a gallon of vodka or do I have a shot glass of vodka? We need to have those conversations here. <laughs> Don't drink, eat 100 milligrams of chocolate and wonder why, you know, you're, you can't move your toes. Have five milligrams of, of cannabis. Whitney Beatty is the owner and operator of Josephine and Billy's, a marijuana dispensary aimed at black women, right? Billy Holiday, Josephine Baker, you get the deal. It's hard to be a black woman in small business. So we wanted to focus on somebody in the weed dispensary space because it's really hard to make it work in that, but she's getting it done in LA. It's a fantastic dispensary. Let's talk about marijuana with Whitney Beatty of Josephine and Billy's on Touré Show. Whitney, the CEO of Josephine and Billy's, I love the name because they are two of my favorite people. Billy, one of my favorite singers of all time. Why did you come up with that name? 
because they're two women of color who were persecuted for their cannabis consumption and yet used their art to fight against injustice. They rejected the mainstream. They wrote their own rules. Um, and they held the door open for lots of women who came after them. And for me, that's goals AF. So you're reclaiming their weed usage. Like we're going to, we're going to use it in a legal and powerful and empowering way. Absolutely. And I think that we have an obligation to in an industry that's being built on the backs of black and brown people to bring up the names of the people that are kind of, you know, um, uh, that tend to be forgotten about in in that fashion. Um, And so when I, I wanted to build a dispensary that focused on women of color, why not bring up the names of women of color who paved the path? I mean, it's sad that there are so many black and brown people who are suffering for having sold marijuana in the prohibition days. And yet there are so few black and brown people in the legal space. Say it louder for the people in the back. (laughs) (laughs) Because we are in an industry where less than um, the numbers uh, say that less than 2% of people in the cannabis space um, are are black and less than 1% of the licensed entities in the cannabis space are black. And yet... Um, you know, we are the ones who paid the ultimate price. We saw the drug war look at, you know, uh, the numbers in prisons go from 40,000 to a half a million, um, where our communities are the ones that paid the, the ultimate price. We are, um, depending on where you are, um, two to 11 times more likely to be arrested for cannabis consumption, even in legal markets. Um, so we cannot have a world where Chad can open a dispensary on the corner that Jamal <laughs> remains in prison for. That's not a thing. <laughs> that cannot be a thing. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Is it just racism that has led to so few Black people being part of the legal space? Um, racism in, in, in different forms. Um, I think that the barriers to entry um, become high. Um, and one of those lar- the largest barriers to entry within this space end up being financial. Um, you know, it costs a lot of money to play ball in the cannabis industry. Um, and we're not a space because we're federally illegal. You can't go down to the Bank of America and say, hey, can you give me that, you know, small business loan so I can open this dispensary? Because you cannot do that. And so you're stuck in a world where you have to be able to raise money from investors and you have to be able to do that from either VCs or angel investors. So let's think about that. Angel investors tend to invest in people that remind them of themselves um, and people who are in their networks. And generally, black and brown people don't have angel investors in their networks. Um, Angel investors tend to be older white men, and they're investing in people who remind them of themselves, which are younger white men. Um, And so when we don't have these people in our circles, we don't have access to that capital. And if we're looking on the other side, VCs are giving 2% of their money to female-led businesses. And if we're looking at Black women-led businesses, that number sinks down to 0.0006%. So we're not seeing the capital necessary to open these businesses. When you're thinking of a dispensary that's going to need, you know, a a million to $2 million to open, and we're still in a world where less than 100 female, Black female CEOs have raised over a million dollars in any industry. Wait, let's go back one second. How much does it cost to open a dispensary? Somewhere between a million or $2 million. What does that break down to? We're talking about, you know, 
so in cannabis, you're you're doing all the things that a normal business does, and you, we have a huge layer of compliance on top of it. So we're talking about the money that it's going to take to to get the building, to do to buy the product, to to go through the licensing process, which can take you know months or years um, to hold um, you know this property. For me and the city of Los Angeles, I had to hold the property and pay lease on the property that I had for well over two years, making no money. And I was, you know, I'm a social equity applicant. Social equity programs exist to give prioritization to, um, you know, disproportionately disenfranchised, you know, uh, populations. So it is known that we are, you know, have less resources. And yet I'm paying rent for two years. Why did you you do that? Huh? Why did you have to do that? Because that was the requirement to get the license. We had to hold that property and the license is attached to the property. To get a marijuana license, you have to own the property for two years. You had to hold that property. So you applied with this property address. So I had to lease the property, say, show that I had this lease on this property. And then can I get a, um, a, a license to sell cannabis at this, this address? Um, and if I lose this address, then I have to start over. Uh-huh. And, and to be clear, every municipality is different. Cannabis is a closed system, i.e., The rules in California are different than the rules in Oregon, which are different than the rules in New Jersey. And the rules within each municipality or city are different. So the rules in in L.A. are different than the rules in Oakland, which are different than the rules in Sacramento. I would would think the rules in L.A. are a little more, let's say, liberal or permissive. Is that the case? Mm, No. um, (laughs) No. Compliance is compliance is compliance. Um, and that is one of the harder parts of the, the, the cannabis industry in order to um, make this legal. Um, they, they jump through a lot of hoops to make a lot of people feel good about, you know, making cannabis legal. Um, and a lot of that was putting lots of layers of regulation on top of this. Um, so we've got seed to sale tracking. We've got, um, you know, lots of things that are, that we're required to do. Um, and that just makes it, you know, even more difficult for us, um, in order to stay compliant, um, and, uh, do all the things that the government wants us to do, that the state wants us to do, um, on a local level, um, and that the Department of Cannabis Regulatory System wants us to do. When you talk about that one to two million dollars that it takes to start a dispensary, is that um, the leasing amount that you have to hold? Is is that your biggest number or are there other big numbers within that? It's it's building out. Um, It's um, setting up that regulatory um, compliance system. Um, it's, um, the overhead from all the people involved, you know, I've got to have, a um, how many employees, uh, um, right now at store five, uh, 15. Um, I also obviously have to have lots of lawyers involved, um, to, to get through this, um, you know, uh, with lots of different specialties, um, uh, involved in that. Um, there's lots of security concerns, um, and so you've got to be paying, um, you know, armed guards um, and have lots of um, security in place in store where cash heavy generally business. Uh, lucky for us that there are some now uh, ways to do some sort of banking. So we're not as 
um, uh, as cash heavy as we used to be, but you, you know, safes and all that sort of stuff, making sure that you're uh, building things with reinforced doors, all of those sort of things. We're not, you know, we're not a blockbuster. We've got to make sure that <laughs> you got to put in those good doors with the good locks and the security cams and all of those sort of things that that make sure that you're making a safe thing for the community as well. As an insider, are there lots of stories of stores getting robbed? Yes. Um, I mean, you, uh, especially up, um, and if you looked, uh, at what happened in, in the Bay, um, uh, and we had two, um, big, um, incidents in the Bay, um, in the last year and a half, two years, um, during COVID where we had runs of times where we saw lots of, um, cannabis businesses getting hit time and time again, um, and Arm being armed hits. And we're talking about not just one or two people showing up. We're talking about, you know, 10, 12, 15 cars showing up at these locations in the Bay. I'm also, um, I'm vice president of an organization called Supernova Women. We're a 501c3 that seeks to encourage women of color to become stakeholders in the cannabis space. And we do that through education, advocacy, and networking. Um, and one of the things that we, um, do is we have a, um, workforce development program and we have, um, and we support a, um, a community kitchen, um, where we allow people to, uh, that allows people to work together, um, and, uh, build their businesses working out of a, a community, um, a community space because we, what we realized was there was a lot, uh, there was a, a lack of black and brown businesses that were doing edibles, um, and doing certain space, um, jobs within the cannabis space because they couldn't afford the equipment. Um, and so they, we went after an RFQ, um, uh, with the city, um, and were able to put forth, um, uh, a equity first, um, uh, kitchen up there. Um, and that even got hit multiple times, uh, where we, it literally, literally doors off hinges, like, you know, ran through things got stolen or what have you. Uh, I've got friends who literally saw their safe being carried out by, you know, criminals or what have you. And what becomes even more disappointing is when they're seeing this thing and they're calling the police and the police aren't there, you know, and aren't showing up so they can, you know, watch for hours as these people are running through their business. And when you're a cash heavy business and you don't have access to, to banking, a lot of times we're lucky in the fact that we have, um, you know, my company has banking, but all cannabis businesses don't have banking because, we're still federally illegal. Lots of banks don't want to deal with us. And the banks that do want to deal with us are charging lots of money. So we're talking, you know, you're paying two, you know, one to $2,000 a month in banking fees because they're, you know, yeah, because of the amount of, you know, checks and balances they, that they're doing on their side in order sure. to stay um, ahead of the, any problems on the Fed side for even holding your money. Sure. And so because of that, a lot of the cannabis businesses are okay. Like, well, I don't have, especially your smaller black and brown owned businesses. I don't have $2,000 to give you. $2,000 to give you is the difference for, between me being able to, you know, make my, my ends meet. So I'm going to just put my money in the safe 
And now my safe got carried off. Now all my tax money is gone. Now my mon- my business is not, you know, a business anymore. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. It takes one to two million dollars to get a dispensary started. Mm-hmm. How'd you do it? How'd you get the money? Um, robbing people. No, <laughs> no, like, <laughs> no. I, I I raised the money. I raised the funds. Um, so angel. Um, I I raised from VCs and angel investors. Um, and. I did not intend to uh, have to do it that way. I lost, at first I had a VC partner and I lost them at the top of COVID. Um, And that's actually, it changed the game for me. Um, And I ended up uh, sitting down with my attorney and um, she brought in a friend of hers, um, Ebony Anderson, 
who um, ended up being my business partner. And she sat down and she was like, look, you could partner with another VC or another big MSO, but you know, you've been working in cannabis for a long time and I've been working in cannabis. And what we know for sure is that we have the skill set necessary to do everything in this space. Um, why do you need to partner with anyone else? Let's do this together. Um, let's be black girl magic. Uh, Cause we're three black women. Um, and we hadn't seen that happen before. And I was like, well, that, you know, and, and she had a skill set that I did not have. My background was actually in the entertainment industry. Um, I had um, I'm a master's degree in film production and worked um, in the developing reality TV shows for 15 years before I transferred into the um, into cannabis uh, with a, a different company that did um, cannabis humidors. Um, her background was in um, urban planning and licensing which is all the things that I did not know. Um, and so she was like, but, and I knew how to raise money because for my other company, I'd raised money before, um, but nothing like a million dollars. And I knew I needed at least a million dollars to get this off the ground. And I really needed two. Um, but she said, you know, I can get the license. I can do the, the, the you know, the planning part. Um, you just go out and raise the million dollars. And I was like, well, there's less than a hundred Black women who have ever raised a million dollars. She's like, go on out there. You can do it. Um, so I so I did. Um, and I went out there at the top of COVID as, as no one wanted to give anything um, and started trying to raise this money. And um, I heard about a fund that was opening up um, that was led by this guy um, named Jay-Z. Um, that, um, uh, and a company called TPCO um, that was coming together. Um, and it was a social equity fund that was intended to support black and brown entrepreneurs who are coming into this space. Um, and I, you know, really pushed because the idea behind Josephine and Billy's was, you know, we're the first dispensary in the country to focus on women of color. And I felt like it was the underserved demographic um, when we really look at it. Uh, women are one of the stress, most stressed demographics out there. Um, sure. And women of color are the most stressed demographic uh, of all. And yet sure. we have the least access to healthcare. Um, and when we do have access to healthcare, um, you know, data is showing that the doctors aren't listening to us. And when they do listen to us, we don't have the funds to pay for <laughs> the medications that they give us. Um, and so with a dispensary that is focused on education, like, you know, uh, Josephine and Billy's is, um, and to be able to offer a store that is designed by Terpene Profile, which is really um, something special. I really, you know, was pushing uh, TPCO to really see that we thought that we could make a difference um, in communities of color in a way that we hadn't seen before. Um, well, how, how is your, you, your business is, focused on black women. Um, I've been to some dispensaries before and I, ha I have not been to yours, um, but the next time I go to LA, I will check you out. But um, how is it that you are focusing on black women? Oh, um, so yeah, we're, we're focusing on uh, women of color and everything we do. And, uh, and ev so from the moment you walk in, um, you know, from the pictures on the wall to the, to the fact, you know, that, it was designed by black women, the, the, the way that we shop, um, uh, to the way that, um, we program. So, um, for instance, 
Um, the store is designed by terpene profile. Terpenes are the oils in the plant, um, and it is a better way to dis- to determine how cannabis is going to make you feel than sativa and indica. At this point in time, cannabis has been so um, uh, engineered that the words sativa and indica don't mean much um, because of genetics. Um, however, when you test the plant and you look at the terpene profiles, um, you can know more about how that plant is going to affect you. Therefore, if I can test it and say, hey, this plant is myrosine heavy, that's going to let me know that it's going to give you a relaxation feeling. It's going to give you more of a body high. I can tell you more about how that plant's going to make you feel. Women, when they shop, want to know, how is this plant going to affect me? How is it going to make me feel? How is it going to make my life better? The fact that we're even thinking in that way is because we want to attract that audience. The fact that our store is designed um, with baskets and people can touch the product um, or whatever, it's not behind glass. Um, So people can touch, you know, pick up the boxes, touch the things or what have you. That was because we know that that is how women want to shop. The the fact that we've got pictures of um, Black women and men from the 1920s and 30s on the wall so they can see themselves depicted um, in the store is, you know, uh, because we wanted to to show them themselves reflected within the store, the 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 events that we throw in store, like our tea and terpene series, which is a cannabis one on one class that I teach myself, that really goes deep into not just how the plant uh, affects you, but also the history of cannabis. Because communities of color have a PTSD. When your community has been torn apart by the war on drugs, you can't just get somebody's grandmother to pour, you know, a cannabis tincture on their legs. She's like, oh, you're trying to put me on them drug drugs. So you need to be able to have a real conversation with people about 3000 years of plant medicine against 70 years of prohibition and why, you know, why they have this stigma in their lives. So it becomes a holistic view of the way that we approach cannabis um, and the sales of cannabis um, at Josephine and Billy's that, that really. Uh, it's interesting um, you said that, yeah. that, that your customer, that, that black women want to really touch the flower. And so that's a big part of the experience in your store. Well, yeah, they want to touch the product. So if you go to a, um, a traditional dispensary, a lot of times you've got, um, you know, these glass cases and people are like, what do you want? And then, you know, you got to point to things in the glass case or whatever, or you'll have a bud tender who's there who, you know, you'll say, um, you know, I, I can tell you about that fire or, you know, I can tell you about what has the highest THC percentage. But when you go to the bar, you don't say what has the highest alcohol percentage. Please give me that moonshine. That's not the way that we drink alcohol. <laughs> so why would we consume cannabis in that way? You know, we have, uh, we call our bud tenders advocates. Um, and they're, you know, one of the first things that they're going to ask you is like, are you here for healing or are you here for a good time? Are you, you know, what brings you into the shop today? And they're going to talk, you know, walk you through the store and really talk to you about your experience and what you're here for, um, and give you a more in-depth experience, um, and a more in-depth information than you're going to find, um, you know, at, you know, uh, personally at, at, than at any other dispensary. Are you creating your own flowers? We are, we have a in-house line of, of joints that we do. Um, uh, matter of fact, we can barely keep them in stock because they sell out so quick and we're doing uh, dime bags too um, of, of cannabis that we really do um, push out um, about experiences and how it makes you feel 
Um, because I think that that, you know, again, women really, you know, it becomes harder for us to say, oh, what gelato 33 means to us. <laughs> but if I can <laughs> tell someone, you know, that this is, this is going to be relaxing, this is going to be decompressing, that this is going to be giggly or what have you, those are the, the words and the feelings that I think have a bigger impression on the female audience. Um, you know, one of the challenges for you as a small business is that there are many other dispensaries not not far from you that folks could go to. I imagine there's some that are larger than you and thus they can cut the prices in ways that you can't as a smaller dispensary. So how do you deal with the challenge of now people have lots of choices? Absolutely. I mean, um, and that's on, you know, two different levels. I mean, there are, um, there's definitely large players in the game. Um, you know, the, the multi-state operators and the people who have, you know, 30 dispensaries, um, and who are popping up all over. I think for us, it is quality over quantity. Um, I'm never going to be able to fight with the Walmarts of the world. What we can do um, is give you an amazing experience every time you you walk in. We are the culture of cannabis. Um, you know, we're going to make sure that you have um, the education that is necessary, which is why we make sure that we're throwing events. We make sure that we're going to make, you know, uh, give your grandmother a great time every time she walks in. Our store is literally a, um, you know, it's a tea pad. Um, so you walk in, the, the front of the store is a, a cover store. You give a um, a password to get into the back, and it's a 1920-style teapad. Um, so it's an experience every time you come. Um, and so whether it's you're coming to do Pilates with us, you know, or you're coming for our first Sundays where we're um, bringing in vendors um, uh, from the community and, and offering food, free food trucks and having music, or if they're doing, you know, a, a sex and education workshop or a, a massage class or what have you, we're really pushing cannabis education and really trying to destigmatize the plant in ways that I don't think we've seen within our community. So with your experience, uh, when I walk into your store, it, it, is it meant to sort of feel like a speakeasy sort of thing? Absolutely. So you come into a space that really feels like a smoke shop um, and you use a, a password, uh, which is Billy sent me. So if anyone who's watching wants to come on by, you know, um, it's Billy sent me and you go through um, a, 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 a space and you end up in a, a room that is very different from the, the original. Um, and so it really is supposed to be something that is, you know, a transformative uh, type of um, experience, um, something that is different from the norm. What if, I, what if I said Josephine sent me? Would you say no, no? <laughs> You're talking to the wrong person. <laughs> like, I'm like, even when they mess up, we try to get them there. We 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 work with the people. <laughs> like, <laughs> easy to say. Easy to say. It's okay. You also have, of course, the challenge of the underground market. I always thought, and I continue to think, the thing that will truly crush the underground market is a robust. Uh, above ground market, legal market, which makes it much harder for them to to make a margin that makes sense to be taking these massive risks. Um, is what is the challenge for running 
an above ground legal business when there are people who are still doing it illegally um, and perhaps doing things that you may not be able to do, right? You you can't run it to my house, right? I have to come to you. To I, mean, I, I do have a delivery license. So in theory, you know, when we start having delivery, I could run it to your house okay. or what have you. My, my, um, but uh, the um, traditional market or the illicit market or however they want to, you know, you want to address it. Um, it de- definitely is still robust in California. The numbers are, have been very clear. I mean, they say that the, the um, cannabis uh, market in California is about $5.5 billion annually. Um, and the traditional market, unli- unlicensed market is about 12, 12 billion. Really? So, so they, the- the underground market is still outselling the above two to one. Market. Two to one. Wow. Um, and in, because of taxes, I think the number one uh, stunner is taxes. Because when I have to charge, um, you know, about 37% taxes um, and those guys don't, it becomes a, um, a difficult thing to uh, overcome. However, I think that. Um, safety is, um, one of those, uh, things that bring people to us other than, um, going into the uh, illicit shops. Um, and then uh, that's safety, you know, personal safety, because a lot of those places aren't necessarily safe. And then safety of the product. Um, because I mean, we saw during vape gate, um, you know, you don't know where, especially like those carts are coming from. You're not sure the pesticides on the plant all those things. And the joy of the legal market is that we know exactly where this product is coming from. It's tested, um, seed to sell tracking. It becomes a lot, um, you know, much more comfortable to consume those things on the edible side. You know exactly what you are consuming um, each and every time. And for, you know, even for me as, you know, I'm a cannabis business owner, but I'm also a mother. I can't, you know, just haphazardly consume an edible where I don't know what the dosage is. It's all fun and games until my legs don't work. Um, because I'm like, I'm like, Mommy's mommy. You want to make sure you know what you, you wouldn't buy moonshine from a guy on the corner. Don't buy cannabis. If you don't I mean, know where it's coming from. It, there's the, you know, I, I mean, I used to smoke. I, I had to stop for personal reasons. Um, but, you know, I felt comfortable interacting with the underground market, but there's definitely a consumer who would have said, no, I'm not doing that because it's illegal and thus it's immoral. And then when it becomes legal, they're like, oh, well, I guess it's moral and now I will partake. So there's certainly people who have come into the market because you're legal, um, who wouldn't have gone to, you know, Joe down the corner. Um, mm-hmm. have Has... Has, have the dispensaries, the legal dispensaries moved us toward the uh, the, sort of damaging or crushing the underground market? Are they making less than they used to? I mean, it's a hard time for the legal market right now. I'm not going to lie. It's a hard time for the legal market. The price of of flour has um, dropped tremendously. I mean, when uh, it went from, you know, a high back in the day, you get, you know, $3,200 a pound. Right now you're at $300 a pound. It is like taking wow. a huge tumble. Wait, um, when was it 3200 I mean, a, a few, a couple years back, I'd say. Um, when you started planning this, you were talking about $3,200 a 
a pound. And right now it's $300 a pound. Yeah. $300 a pound. Um, and we're, we're taxed at a tax rate, which is incredibly high. So it makes it hard for us, you know, in the legal market to compete against the, uh, illicit market because, you know, we've got these high taxes, um, that we have to contend with. So for us, you know, as activists, we've been really pushing the state to lower things like the excise tax, which is at 15%. We've been pushing for the, you know, the elimination of the cultivation tax. We're the only industry, the only, you know, plant in the world country that is getting taxed when it gets put in the ground. No one's taxing potatoes when they get put in the ground. You're not taxing corn. Who's taxing a plant that gets put into the ground? It's actually not a thing. So um, I think that what ended up happening was, again, in order to get these laws passed and to make people feel happy about um, allowing legal cannabis, um, a lot of people got greedy in, in the tax space. Um, and unfortunately, that's really hurting um, the market overall. And I think that what needs to happen is that we need to lower these taxes Um and make it easier for people from the illicit market to come into this space. Because also we're still in a space where I think in the state of California, we still have less than a thousand legal dispensaries. We need more retail. Yeah. We need more retail coming in. Um, It's, it's incredible that we still, um, you know, in the, and I don't know what the exact numbers are, but um, the the rumor on the street is that there are more illegal dispensaries in um, in LA than there are Starbucks. So we're talking about you know hundreds, hundreds, <laughs> hundreds, easy hundreds. You mean you mean Joe who'll run it to my house or like smoke shops that are oh, like counter dispensary? Like walk in like the customers generally. I, I would bet that when you go into an illegal dispensary that if you did a poll, 80% would not know that they were illegal. Oh, that really? they were buying at an illegal really? spot because so, they have signs outside that they are, you know, they are advertising, you know, cannabis here. This isn't like, you know, shady guy outside, like, oh, we're at gruff, you know, scary place, illegal cannabis here. This is like, you know, Bob's cannabis shop. Um, the only way that you would know is if you start looking on the wall for licenses or, um, you know, oh, the other things. Oh, that, I would think it's a legal shop. You would think but it was legal. Um, Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. So how is Bob functioning in a world where he's supposed to have all these licenses? Um, because of, of the way in which they do enforcement. Um, so right now, the you know, um, it's, it's a, it's a slippery slope. Um, you know, we're not trying to have drug war 2.0, um, by, you know, uh, again, arresting a bunch of people, um, for the things that, uh, other people can do that are legal. Um, and so now enforcement looks more like, um, you know, enforcement against landlords who are allowing people to, uh, operate illegally. Um, but I think that, um, that is, it's slow going, um, or what have you. And so, um, it has not been, um, you know, and when you're making that sort of money and you're not paying taxes, um, you know, absolutely. So, so they'll do things like they'll cut off the, um, the utilities. Well, awesome. I got a whole bunch of cash. Let me go down to home Depot and buy a generator. Vroom. And now we're selling cannabis again. 
I mean, that's got to bother you as somebody who's following all the rules, doing everything the way you're supposed to be doing it. And there's a hundred people around you, around the corner who just threw up a shop and they're doing their thing and not, not following the rules. It's hard. It's hard because, you know, it's, Following the rules is expensive. Paying those taxes is expensive. Licensure is expensive. You know, I got to pay the city. I got to pay the state. I've got to jump through all these hoops. I've got to do all these things. Um, And so it does suck. Um, And to see, you know, business be slow because um, the guy down the street is not charging for taxes. Um, You know, those things are difficult as we try to establish ourselves as a business um, and build up that customer base. It becomes super frustrating. Um, and, And how we deal with that. Um, as a community becomes, you know, the, the challenge. Um, do I want to see another drug war? No, we have to figure this out in a way that makes sense. Um, and I do think that that's got to be lowering these taxes, lowering them at a city level, because we're still paying, you know, 10% to the city. We're paying 15% on excise tax. I mean, we're, we're take literally 37% at the, at the, the register. It's absurd. And when people see that, you know, they're like, oh shoot, well then I'm going back to trap show Bob. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like dollar at your store doesn't go as far because you got to pass some of that on to, uh, uh, Sacramento. Absolutely. Well, yeah. Um, And so for us, what we do is we work with our brands to make sure that we're getting the best price possible and we make sure that we're passing that savings along to our customer base. And and, uh, to that point, um, it even, um, you know, uh, to go back to one of your previous questions, how are we catering to women? One of the other things we do is we make sure that the excise tax Um, a lot of those taxes are in the price on the wall. So when you see a price on our wall, the only extra taxes you get when you get to the register is that extra 10% tax. So it's not like you're just seeing 37% pop up on the register, which you'll see at, you know, most cannabis retailers, because again, I'm in, I'm on on MLK and Dinker just South of USC. I'm in a very much in a community of color. Um, And, you know, my people are not going to take 37%. They're going to be like, girl, you have lost your whole mind. Um, I need to make sure that that we are catering to our community in the best way possible. And I think that that, that again, is knowing our customer base and what's going to work for them. And so I need to, them to be aware of those taxes. That's why we built them in that way. I and mean, we talked about some of the challenges that you face as a woman running a small business that for, you know would be endemic of any small, any woman doing any sort of small business, what are some of the other challenges that you're facing as a woman in small business and some of the solutions that you have come up with? I mean, uh, oh gosh. I mean, I mean, we've talked about fundraising. That is definitely a big one. Um, I think, um, across the board, um, in cannabis, uh, sometimes it's hard to get taken seriously as a, a female, um, uh, Cannabis has traditionally been a, a male-facing industry, um, and definitely uh, on the corporate side, it's it's very white male. And so, um, being able to um, to be taken seriously um, as a business owner and as a competitor, um, it took a while for us to to kind of make a. a make noise in this space and to, uh, to get credibility here. Um, that's for sure. Um, I think, um, people understanding that we've got the skill set necessary to do this job. 
Um, it's, how do I say? Um, our team from top to bottom um, has been led by a lot of females um, and the people that we come in. So from our um, our design team to the people who uh, work with us on architecture, to the people who work with us on social media, to across the board. And um, I've had so many people say, oh, that's cute that you're um, you know, that you're bringing on women or what have you. And I'm like, I, we did not bring in women because it's cute. We brought on women because we looked at the best people from the job and the best people for the job happened to be these women-led businesses. Um, and I think that uh, we have the opportunity to work with a lot and the almost all of these happen to be women of color. Um, and I think that uh, it's a great opportunity for us to show um you know, some of the businesses and some of the talent that the industry has been slipping on um, because they just were not working or not looking um, at some of these amazingly talented um, businesses and companies. And that's why we also prioritize in our store, um, you know, uh, Black, Brown, women-led, LGBTQ-led um, brands because uh, it's become really hard for these companies to have shelf space within this Ooh. industry because there's a lack of retailers. Um, what are some of the, the big black uh, owned brands that you stock? Who? Oh gosh. Um, Ball Family Farms. We have um, uh, Takao. We've got, um, uh, who, um, uh, let me think. Oh gosh. Viola. Um, we've got um, Queen Mary. We've got, um, let me think of who was in our black box. Um, uh, Bico, um, Black Star Farms. Um, I could go on, um, and like they're gonna all kill me because like I'm I'm blanking on um, uh, some names. We've got a lot of black owned brands. We've got a lot of women led brands. As a matter of fact, we um, in store started um, a project called the Black Box um, because we felt really strongly about pushing uh, our customer base to think about the products that they're purchasing during the month of February and really all year long. Uh, so we did a box offering of 12 black owned products for the month, month of February. And not just us, um, not just Josephine and Billy sold it, but we sold it at five different uh, black owned um, dispensaries, uh, social equity dispensaries with uh, through the city. And they all sold out first day. Um, it was an amazing opportunity, an amazing offering. Um, and we actually went on to do an offering um, last month called the Pink Box, where we did all women-led businesses. Um, so we're really trying to educate the consumer to really think um, about what they're purchasing and why. Oh, Willow think? also, Willow, Black-owned. Um. <laughs> what do you think that um, <clears throat> folks who are outside the industry would be surprised to learn about the reality of being inside the industry? I think the people outside the industry think that we sit around and smoke weed all day and that we're not productive. I mean, I, I think that, 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 you know, that they think... No, it's hard to run a marijuana dispensary. I don't think we think you sit around smoking weed and just... just the, <laughs> we're just wild product, and crazy. Yeah, the product um, blow up, flies off the shelf. I know it's hard. It is. It, it is really hard. I think... Um, you know, running a cannabis dispensary is like operating any other business, but add on a really thick layer of compliance and legal 
um, and security on top of it. And that's what you end up with. Um, so it is a regulatory nightmare. Um, and you can't just be in this space and just work. You also have to be an advocate. Um, it's, you know, you have to, um, you know, stand up for your rights. You have to advocate for the culture. You have to remind people that this industry was built on the backs of black and brown people. Um, and it's really important for you to really do your homework. Um, and understand where this, you know, where this all came from. Um, and, and, you know, the Harry Anslingers of the world, you know, the guy who said, you know, reefer makes darkies think they're as good as white men. Um, because without understanding how we got here, we won't end up where we need to be. Well, how do you acquire customers? I saw a thing. I saw Kevin O'Leary from Shark Tank, a quote I think it was on TikTok the other day where he said the, the biggest challenge most businesses have is that the advertising slash cost of acquiring new customers is greater than their profit. So they advertise themselves into uh, the okay. grade. But I mean, like the whole game is we create, you know, a, a business and we got to get people in the door to consume the business. Right. When you get to be gigantic, McDonald's does tons of advertising. They don't have to. We already know what that is. They're all over the place, right? Starbucks, we know what that is. We don't know what you are yet. We know what you have, but you know, we, we already have a, a, a positive relationship with the product, you know, even if we have never smoked it. But how do we get, how do you get people in the door right, to know that you're here in a way that is uh, financially responsible? That's a great question. I mean, and to uh, be honest, those are some of the things that we still are figuring out. Um, you know, right now, how are we doing it? We're doing it um, through um, events um, and through programming um, and trying to find that balance because right now it becomes really, you know, even personally, you can't get me to walk into a Target. I pull into the parking lot and I pop my trunk and people throw things in the back. Uh, you know, I don't want to walk out of my car. So how do we get people to commit to coming into the store? For us, it's about building an experience that makes you want to walk into the store every time. Something that's going to be new, something that's going to give you, um, you know, that feels like a part of the community. And so for us, it's the, it's building that community. It's it's having our tea and terps class where we're teaching people about how to consume cannabis, teaching th people things they don't know about CBD, about THC, about terpenes, um, about best practices on, on consumption. You know, people don't know that um, you know about bioavailability. Why is it better to um, you know to consume a tincture than a edible? Um, because you know, the bioavailability of an edible is somewhere between 5 and 25%. But if you buy a tincture, the bioavailability is going to be between 25 um, and 60%. So, you know, technically you're getting more cannabis there. It's better value for your money. No, you wouldn't know that unless you came to class. Um, so you're getting more information there or, you know, being able to teach people about the, the history of cannabis or being able to have, you know, those special events where come in and do cannabis yoga with us or we're going to have something for the community um, and you'll be able to come and party with us in the parking lot, or we're going to have a women's day event, um, being able to really engage with our customer base. So they feel like they're a part of something. What we've learned is that people in cannabis oftentimes feel isolated. 
you know, because they've been stigmatized for so long that we're the bad kids behind the gym. We're the ones who were unproductive um, or what have you. So when there's an opportunity for us to come together and say, hey, that's not us. You know, we've got jobs. We're mothers. We're, you know, uh, we're productive. We're professionals. We're all of these things. Can we come together, um, you know, and have our cannabis book club meeting? Can we come together um, and, you know, talk about um, parenting or or even, you know, or Bridgerton or whatever that is. Um, we want to have those opportunities as well. Mm. Oh, wait a minute. No, now, I could see getting high and doing yoga. That could be a great experience and you may be more limber and flexible than you are when you are sober, right? So you mm-hmm. could have a better experience, right? And, and there's a sort of generally a slowness to yoga that I think goes along with the way that cannabis kind of slows your perception of time. Cannabis book club. I'd be like, what? I can't even understand this book. Maybe a movie, maybe Bridges. I can't, I can't understand this book. Once I smoke a little bit, I'm done. I can't read. I'm like, do you know what people who are, who are high love to do? Argue, argue about some, uh, a book. <laughs> what had happened was <laughs> like, read it straight and then we get stoned and argue about the book. Now that's what that we, that we can do. Absolutely. Absolutely. Or talk about a movie and all, all those sort of things. If, if you think about it, some of the deepest conversations people oh, have oh, are, oh. Are, are when they're high. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, but, but it, it seems taboo to say it. But sometimes we are better parents when we're high, right? You mindfulness, your patience level. Patience. I'm like, for me, I use cannabis because. What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order. Usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market. Dot com slash Toray. Thrivemarket.com slash Toray. On March 16, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamin, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Because um, of anxiety. So to be able to lower that anxiety level, it allows you to really, you know, sometimes get on the floor and be and have the patience to play cars or to play, you know, Legos or what have you um, and, and to be able to shake that stress off. Um, people don't, you know, generally 
talk about those things as much. But I think that it becomes really important that we do have those conversations about the way in which we can consume. I think marijuana grounds you in the moment that you are in, right? It really makes you present. And quite often when we're parenting, we're thinking, oh, you didn't use your fork correctly and you're going to grow up and not use your fork correctly. You're going to be not accepted by society. This will become a problem later on. And when you're high, you're a little more focused on like, it's okay right now, baby. Like it's, it's, we're just right now. We're just like, we're having fun today. And that's also the joy of cannabis is people, I think, think of that. There's only two levels to this. Um, where and they never think of cannabis as that that glass of wine after work or that beer after work um, and you know that a, a five milligram gummy um, you know can, can do that for you or a one to one you know gummy um, can really just be that that glass of wine that that takes off some of that stress um, and having that cannabis knowledge can really be able to work those things into your life in a way. Um, that, that doesn't mean that you have to be, you know, staring in the corner high. Um, and, but, but when people don't have that information, they have those bad experiences and then they're like, oh, I, I can't do that cannabis. Cause I had a bad ex- experience. Well, if this was the end of prohibition, you'd have to have a conversation with someone. Do I drink a gallon of vodka or do I have a shot glass of vodka? We need to have those conversations here. <laughs> don't drink, eat a hundred milligrams of chocolate and wonder why, you know, you're, you can't move your toes. Have well, five milligrams of, of cannabis. I mean, you know, <laughs> you know if, if the way that most people experience marijuana would be like, if I just handed you an unlabeled bottle of wine and I said, this is wine. And I'm like, well, I don't, I don't like, so I take it. I don't like wine. Well, you don't like Pinot Grigio, but have you tried Merlot? Have you tried whatever? And I'm like, yeah, you, you, people are like, oh, I smoked weed once and it put me to sleep. Okay, well, that's a certain kind of marijuana. To say nothing of how much you took, maybe you took something else, you wouldn't go to sleep and you'd that have part. a better experience. That And no one talks about these things. I'm like, marijuana is the exact same way. We're talking, there's your vodka, your tequila, your rum, your brandy. There's all these different strains that are going to treat you differently each and every time. You have to find what's going to work for you. Um, And so one bad glass of wine is not going to turn you off of all alcohol generally. So don't let one bad cannabis experience turn you off of cannabis. Um, That's what cannabis education is for. Come learn something Find some things that work for you. Take it low, take it slow. Um, but it really can um, make a difference. What do you think about the possibility of federal legalization? Do you think that that is possible? I want to say within our lifetime, within the next decade? Like, Oh, it's coming. It's coming. I believe that it's coming. I think it'll be in, within the next decade. Um, I think that, you know, I, I'd say that it's going to happen in the next five years. Um, five years. I, I would say so. I'm nervous. And, you know, to be honest, I'm very nervous about it um, for a number of reasons. Um, what we've seen now is um, a that you know there's a, a very good possibility of a heck of a lot more taxes popped on. And what we know for sure is that you know these taxes that we're paying now are high enough as it is, um, and the feds are going to want you know um, a piece of that action. And, you know, 
from going, you know, to be paying uh, upwards of 40%, that's not going to help um, anything um, that we've got going on right now. Um, it also really, you know, depends on how the feds end up, um, you know, enacting this. Um, we've been looking at things like the Moore Act um, that has been, um, you know, been playing around with or what have you, but early drafts of that um, had some provisions that would really uh, be damaging um, to uh, social equity programs nationwide. Um, so social equity is the idea that communities of color have been disproportionately disenfranchised by the war on drugs and thus deserve prioritization and licensing. Every city um, sets up their own equity program if they so choose. Um, and those rules and determining how equity is um, laid out are decided by said city. Um, and generally are, you know, because of um, the laws cannot say, oh, you know, equity is um, is limited to black and brown people. So um, they generally do something that is, um, oh, we're looking at zip codes of over enforcement plus, um, you know, how much money people make. Um, and maybe, you know, if there are previous um, uh, previous convictions, um, lots of jurisdictions say that if you have a previous conviction, you have prioritization for licensing. Some like, you know, the city of Los Angeles now, um, it wasn't the rule when I applied, but now um, in order to uh, qualify for social equity, you have to have a previous cannabis conviction. Um, But, you know, uh, previous versions of the Moore Act. You must have a conviction. Mm -hmm. They're literally uh, must have a conviction. So, um, uh, going forward, Which we, I mean, like we like that provision, right? Cause we're well, trying absolutely. to, I mean, because if, if we're going to fix the harms of the war on drugs, we're going to give these people opportunities. However, um, you know, previous, uh, iterations of the Moore act would have wiped that out because they said that people with previous convictions cannot participate in this new legal entity. Um, uh, you know, industry. So though that would be a conflict. So we need to make sure that in federal legalization, that we're not wiping out some of the good work that we're doing with equity um, in, in that process. We need to make sure that what happens federally is taking into account what the war on drugs did to us. And we also need to make sure that where these tax dollars are going um, is benefiting our communities and not just with um, you know, prioritization and licensing. Because at the end of the day, you know, um, everyone doesn't want to license, but communities of color were damaged. Um, what, you know, my grandmother doesn't want to sell cannabis. So now what? So how do we fix her neighborhood? How do we reinvest in those communities? How do we lower recidivism rates? How do we make sure that, you know, those communities see the, the benefits of, you know, uh, this community reinvestment without having to, you know, only get a license from it? We need to make sure that we're doing that work um, as these laws are being written, because what we know for sure is that we're not good at going back and fixing things after the fact. That's our show. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality and maybe this show can help. You can find me on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show. 
Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jennifer Ford. Our editors, Ryan Woodhall. Our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shanta Covington and Nick Carp. Our booker is Claudia Jean, and we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back on Wednesday with more amazing guests because the man can't shut us down. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered.